Good morning, church. Teach me, Lord, to wait. That's what this series is all about this month, is about patience, is about being okay when things are not okay. Uh, And I know, I know that there are a lot of things on our heart this morning. There always are, not just in 2020 or 2021. There are always a lot of things on our heart, but these last uh, 10, 12 months have just extremely have brought that out in extreme in an extreme way just this past week one of my best friends uh, had the funeral for his dad who lost his battle unfortunately with covid and my friend said something at the funeral this week that has really just stuck in my mind and my heart he said that when we come together in these kinds of times and not just at funerals but anytime god's people come together and we pool our grief our grief diminishes. But we not only pool our grief, he said we also pool our joy, and when we pool our joy, it increases. And I love that thought. When we pool our grief, it diminishes, and when we pool our joy, it increases. And that's what we do every week. We come together and we pool our grief, not just right now, not just in the battles that we're facing right now and the things with which we're dealing collectively and individually right now, but always. This is the place where we can come and pool our grief, and it does diminish, and a place where we can come and pool our joy, and it does increase as we celebrate the good news in Jesus But we're reminded, aren't we, that there are a lot of things in the world that are simply not okay. They're not all right. They're not ideal. They're not the way it's supposed to be. I was thinking through that this week, and I was looking at some numbers, and some numbers that are overwhelming, and I don't tell you this to overwhelm you, but because it's just reality, that there are 40 million people, 40 million people in the world right now that are enslaved in some kind of slavery, 40 million people in the world. And that same number, or near that same number, about 40 million unborn children every year are aborted. There are 150 million people in the world that live in what they call extreme poverty, meaning they live on less than $1.90 a day. 150 million people in extreme poverty. There are one billion people, and I can't even fathom that number, one billion people who live in what they call inadequate shelter. One billion people in the world who live with inadequate shelter. And we know that there are countless people all over the world that face persecution, discrimination, oppression because of who they are, because of their race or their ethnicity. It's Christians, brothers and sisters, our our fellow believers around the world. They estimate eight Christians are killed every day for their faith, and ten people are imprisoned every day because they're followers of Jesus. None of this is okay. None of this is okay. Just this week, I was reading an article about a man in Myanmar who was shackled for three days for the crime of, get this, for the crime of buying bananas from a Christian vendor. And he was shackled for three days. And for some reason, that, that experience led him to go to another village 
and seek out a Christian minister, and there he found somebody to teach him about Jesus. And then he took that minister back to his own village, and they were having a worship service, Bible study in his home, and the villagers unfortunately came, dragged the minister out, and severely beat him, stoned the worshipers, and kicked five families out of the village because they wanted to learn about Jesus. None of this is okay, is it? None of this is okay. None of this is all right. None of this is the way that it's supposed to be. And so the question, the question when we face things in our own personal individual lives or in our family or in our country or in our world, the question we all have to ask and wrestle with is how do we live patiently in a world like this? How do we live patiently in a world like this, when we know that there are things that are not okay, there are things that are not all right, things that, that make us sick to our stomach, things that hurt our heart, things that make tears come to our eyes, things that break our heart in our own personal world and in our collective world, how do we live patiently in a world like this? Do we just simply say, well, I'm glad I don't have to personally experience that kind of thing. I'm glad that most of the time my life is pretty comfortable or my life is okay. Do we live in constant fear that maybe something like that, something horrible, something painful will happen to us? Do we get bullets and bombs and try to rid the world of evil and try to drive out all of the evil in the world? How do we live patiently in a world like ours? How do we live patiently in a world where we see things that are wrong, things that should not be this way, and how do we hold on? How do we smile? How do we sing? How do we press on? How do we keep going? How do we do what we're called to do and be who we're called to be, knowing we live in a world where these kinds of things exist and happen? How do we live patiently in this sort of world? That's what this series is all about. In fact, that's what the Bible is all about. That's what Jesus is all about, is teaching us how to live patiently, joyfully in a world like this. Live with hope in a world where evil continues to exist. And I think the story of David, the story that was just read for us of David in the cave dealing with Saul, I think this is a perfect example of how we live patiently in a world like this. Here's David, this man after God's own heart, who, if you're not familiar with the story, was already anointed as the next king of Israel. Samuel had already anointed David when he was just a boy to be the next king of Israel. But he had to wait until Saul's reign was over. In the beginning, David and Saul had a pretty good relationship. It was okay for a while. And then after a while, it was not okay. And Saul started throwing spears at him and eventually drove him out of town. And eventually he pursues him in the wilderness with 3,000 troops. That's not okay, is it? That's not okay. That's not okay for someone's jealous rage to persecute, oppress, and chase someone to try to kill them and murder them. That's not okay. But how is David supposed to live and be okay in a world, in a situation that is simply not okay? And then Saul falls right into David's hands. And that's where our story is this morning, and I think it will help us to live patiently in a world like ours. So look at 1 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 3. 
It says, he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, here's the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. This is your chance, David. This is your opportunity. Just seize it. God has brought him into your hand. All of the running, all of the hiding, all of the persecution, it can all be over. All you have to do is take matters into your own hands, kill this guy, and let's be done with it. Let's move on. Let's be done with this rule and reign of this evil king and all of the hateful, hurtful, painful things that he's caused It's all going to be over, and all you have to do is take this opportunity to rid the world and rid your own life of Saul. Now, David certainly had people in his ear that were justifying that sort of decision, and David could have justified it. We would all look at David and say, oh, that makes sense, right? It it seems incredibly justifiable to take Saul's life, and that's the way it is. When we're tempted to take matters into our own hands and to not live patiently and to not wait for the Lord and to just go ahead and do the thing that will make the hurt stop and make the pain stop. When we're tempted to take matters into our own hand and do what we want to do, there's always a way to justify it, isn't there? There's always a way to justify it, but yet David doesn't do that. Instead of taking Saul's life, he takes a corner of Saul's robe, and he even feels guilty about that, because here Saul is the king, the anointed one, God's anointed king, even though David is also God's anointed king. He feels guilty even for cutting a piece off of Saul's robe. And then after the event has passed, and Saul has left the cave, and David has an opportunity to call Saul out, and to rebuke Saul for what Saul was doing and to highlight the different way that David dealt with the situation. Here's what he says. Look at verse 11. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. Now, 1 Samuel is all about contrast. This story is all about contrast. The contrast between Saul, who's a king after man's own heart. He is a fleshly king. From his fear, to his pride, to his hate, to his anger, to his jealousy, he is a king after man's own heart. And David, in so many ways, not in every way, but in so many ways, is a man and a king after God's own heart. He highlights and foreshadows the king that his great, 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 great grandson Jesus will be, who is fully God and fully man, who is truly God's anointed one, who is the king after God's own heart, Jesus. And David, in so many ways, foreshadows his coming descendant, Jesus. And here we see that highlighted. And we see the contrast, don't we? It's an incredible contrast. David says, here's how you treat me. You hunt my life to take it. You are trying to murder me, and I had the opportunity to murder you, and I didn't do it. Do you see the contrast, Saul? Do you see the difference between the way you treat me and the way I'm treating you? That's 
always been the way God's people are called to live, isn't it? In contrast, there has to be a difference between the way that fleshly people, earthly people, worldly people, the way we want to do things, the way every one of us desires to do things, and the way God calls us to do things. There's always supposed to be a difference. But if David was to do to Saul exactly what Saul was doing to him, what difference would there be? That's the question, right? That's the question. If there's no difference between the way you handle your problems and the way the world handles their problems, then are we really living as God's people? If we handle our problems the same way the world handles their problems, we are living no differently. And Jesus would ask questions like that, right? He said, you, you love the people that love you. Big deal. Everybody does that. You're nice to the people that are nice to you. Big deal. Everybody does that. You have to be different. In what way? That you love your enemies. And instead of treating them the way everybody else treats their enemies, you treat your enemies differently. You deal with evil differently. You deal with people differently. You deal with people even that are out to get you differently than everyone else does. Everyone else in the world treats their friends and their family and the people that are close to them, and the people that they love, they treat them well. Everybody does that. But nobody does this. This is unusual. This is a huge contrast between what Saul is doing and what David has done. Look at verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. See what David is saying? Out of the wicked comes what? Wickedness, right? Evil people do evil things. And David is saying, if I was to do to you what you're trying to do to me, I would be just as evil. I would be just as wicked. If you use evil to stop evil, then guess what you are? Evil. If you fight lies with more lies, then what are you? A liar. If you fight darkness with more darkness, then what are you? Darkness. Wickedness comes from the wicked. The wicked do wicked things. And David says, this is why I'm not going to do that. You're doing this to me because your heart isn't right, because you're being moved by a spirit that isn't God's. But I'm not going to do this to you. I'm not going to stoop to your level. The end does not justify the means. Or as my mama used to say, two wrongs don't make a a right, do they? And so God's people have always been called, always been called to be different, to respond differently, to deal with problems differently, to deal with evil differently, to deal with their enemies differently. David lives this out in this moment, but Jesus calls us and his people to live this out in every moment that we don't stoop to their level, that we don't fight evil with evil, that we don't fight wickedness with wickedness. Look at verse 14. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. 
I want to be really clear. David is not quiet about Saul's sin, is he? He's not just kind of brushing it aside or sweeping it under the rug and just being like, oh, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. He's not being quiet about Saul's sin. He's calling it out. He's highlighting it. He's saying, this is wrong. You're pursuing me when I am no threat to you. I'm no threat to your rule. I'm no threat to your life. I'm no threat to your family. I'm a flea. I'm a dead dog. I'm nobody. And you're hunting me like I am enemy number one. That's wrong. And you're wrong for doing it. David is highlighting and calling out and rebuking and condemning Saul's behavior. But he has the the moral high ground to do so, doesn't he? Precisely because he refuses to stoop to Saul's level. If he was to do exactly to Saul what Saul is trying to do to David, then what ground would he have to say this is wrong? He has the moral high ground to say this is wrong precisely because he's not willing to do what Saul was willing to do. Look at verse 16. As soon as he had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Saul thankfully recognizes what's going on here. And isn't this the New Testament ethic? Isn't this what Jesus calls his disciples to do? Isn't this what Jesus lives out? Is to repay evil with good? It's hard, isn't it? Nobody does this. That's why it's shocking. It's a shocking story. Saul is shocked. His, David's own men are shocked. Everybody is shocked. We're shocked when we read it, aren't we? Because nobody does this. Nobody has the opportunity to end their pain and suffering and to take vengeance on their enemy and lets the opportunity go. Nobody does that except for God's people. We do that. That's what we're called to do. And he recognizes, Saul recognizes, you've repaid me with good. This is what Jesus calls us to do. Retaliate with love. Retaliate with kindness. Look at verse 18. Saul's still speaking. He says, and you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. See, Saul recognizes nobody does that. Nobody lets their enemy go away safe. Verse 20, and now behold, I I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is This is what we want to happen, isn't it? What we want to happen in being kind to those who are harmful to us, what we want to happen is that we break the cycle. And somebody has to, don't they? When there's hate for hate and hurt for hurt and pain for pain and everyone continues to retaliate with more of the same and we fight fire with fire, somebody has to step in and break the cycle. Somebody has to step in and say, no more of this. I'm not going to retaliate with the same thing that you've given to me. I'm going to retaliate with kindness and good and love. And our hope is, or a hope is, that they're going to recognize that, as Saul did, 
and say, you know what, you're right, I've been wrong, and I need to change my heart. But it doesn't always end up that way, does it? In fact, even in David and Saul's situation, unfortunately, this isn't the end of the story. And so our ultimate hope is not that conversion will happen. That's what we want to happen. We want people's hearts and minds to change, and sometimes that is exactly what happens. But our ultimate hope is in the justice of God. David was willing to do this, to let his enemy go away safely, to not take vengeance, to treat his enemy with kindness and mercy and love because he trusted that God would bring Saul to account. He trusted that God was going to fix the situation. He trusted that God would vindicate him, raise him up, and bring Saul down. He trusted that that would happen, but he was not willing to participate because he trusted in God. Now, I wish the story ended there, but unfortunately, in a couple chapters, chapter 26, we find Saul again pursuing David. 3,000 troops, once again. Verse 8, they sneak into the camp. David and Abishai sneak into Saul's camp while Saul is sleeping. And Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hands this day. Now, please, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he'll go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Again, he has the opportunity, and this time his friend can do it in his place. And again, he has all kinds of ways he can justify himself, but he says, listen, God's going to take care of this problem. He's going to get old and die, or God's going to strike him dead, or he's going to go into battle and he's going to lose and he's going to die. One way or the other, Saul's time is going to come to an end, but I'm not going to be the one to do it. I'm going to wait for the Lord. And again, David is specifically saying this about Saul because Saul is God's anointed king, but Jesus calls us to do this with all of our enemies, doesn't he? To treat our enemies with kindness and love and not to deal with our problems or with other people the way everyone else does. And so David, when, again, when he's out of the situation and he has the opportunity to call Saul to account and he has the opportunity to highlight, okay, once again, you're trying to kill me. Once again, I had the opportunity to kill you. And once again, I did not. He says in verse 23, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. That's how we live patiently in a world like this. That's how we treat other people with kindness and love and mercy. Because our hope, and by hope I mean our confidence, our confidence is what David's confidence was. That just as our enemy's life is precious in our sight, our life will be precious in the sight of the Lord. We have nothing to fear, right? We have nothing to fear. We know how the story ends. We know where this story is headed. The situation right now is not okay, but we know that God will make everything right. 
Now, again, that doesn't mean we sit idly by. It doesn't mean we don't do anything. It doesn't mean we don't call out evil. We certainly call out evil. We are, we are the body of the anointed one, right? Jesus is the descendant of David, the anointed one. And then we, his people, are his body. We are the body of the anointed one. And we live in a time much like David lived in, in that God has anointed his people as the next and coming reigning ones, us with our Lord, and evil still continues to rule and reign. And we live in this period of overlap where there still is evil and pain and things are not okay, but we know how the story will end. And here's how we live that out. Yes, we call out evil, and we highlight just how evil evil is by following the one who refuses to do evil. And then we do what David did, and we leave it up to God to deal with evil, to deal with wrong, to deal with sin. We could put it this way. We call out wrong, we live out love, and we leave the rest up to God. Isn't that what David did? Isn't that what Jesus does? Isn't that what Jesus calls us to do? Call out wrong, live out love, and leave the rest up to God. And that can be incredibly difficult in the midst of pain and hurt, So many times where we want to take matters into our own hands. So many times where we could justify ourselves for not being patient, for not waiting on the Lord. But then we're reminded page after page, story after story, and especially when we look at the cross, that God will take care of his people. He will raise his people up. He will deliver his people. And he will deal with evil. So in the meantime, as we wait patiently, we call out wrong. We live out love, and we leave the rest up to God. If we can help you or encourage you anyway this morning, now's a great opportunity to meet with one of our shepherds at the information desk while together we stand and sing this final song.